Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Are you obsessed with status? I'm Sean Ailing, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. I'd love to tell you that I don't care about status, but that's a lie. I do care about it. I care about it even though I know I shouldn't. When I publish an article or a podcast or when I drop a half-clever tweet, I still find myself waiting for that little ping on my phone. I still get disappointed when something doesn't land the way I hoped it would, as though it's not real unless it's validated somehow by the virtual masses. And it's ridiculous. None of it matters. Not really. I just read a book about all this, and I can't stop thinking about it. It's called The Status Game, and the author is Will Storr, a terrific journalist and writer from the UK. His thesis is that everyone's playing a status game, sometimes multiple status games. And if you're not aware of that, you're probably playing them poorly, which is to say, you may not understand why you do what you do or why you don't do what you wish you would. I decided to invite Will onto the show. We talk about the evolution of status in human life and all the ways it distorts and defines our behavior. So, are you obsessed with status? If your answer is no, this podcast is going to challenge you. At the very least, it will force you to reflect a little more on the meaning of status and the role it plays in your own life. And if your answer to that question is yes, then this conversation might make you feel less terrible about that. Will Storr, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. My sense reading this book was that you don't think most of us take status seriously enough, that it's not just some abstract thing most of us pursue most of the time, that it's actually the key to understanding basically the entire human circus. So let's just start there. Lay out your case for taking status more seriously. Yeah. So the argument in the book really is it's it's a fundamental force in human behavior. So so it's a key. I wouldn't say it's the key, but but it's a key to understanding human social life. You know, we've been competing for status for literally millions of years for longer than we've been human. And for all of that time, it's simply the case that the more status we've earned, 
the better our chances of survival and reproduction. So, so it's completely connected to that kind of fundamental force. So, so it's basically a, your brain's got this basic heuristic, this simple rule, go for status. Because if you go for status, everything else gets better. That's how fundamental it is. And, and, I, and I think that's how we're able to see it. Almost wherever you look in human life, you can see status battles going on. And it's not just, there's not a status game. There are status games and you kind of break it down into three different status games. There's the dominance game, the virtue game, the success game. Can you just kind of say what those are and maybe just draw a distinction between them? I guess to explain them properly, I've got to sort of, in a nutshell, tell the story of human <laughs> human evolution. Yeah. Um, so so we, you got 30 been, seconds. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you know, as I said, for millions of years, we've been competing for status, but originally with mostly with dominance or probably purely with dominance. It's, and dominance is obviously, it's about threat. We, we're forcing people to attend to us with respect and we're, we're forcing people to uh, treat us as if we've, we have elevated rank. Um, and so that's violence, but it's also threat of violence, bullying in any way. And then when we settled down into human groups, of course, you know, violence, it just wasn't going to work in a settled community. We can't go around just beating the crap out of each other constantly for status, really. So, so we, we evolved to be really good at playing these other forms of status games. And these are, these are the prestige games that they're about earning a status for reputation. And you earn prestige in, in, in human social life by proving that you're useful to the group. And that's because humans now are, are just like humans were 20,000 years ago, we, we sometimes can be amazing, but, but also we can be very selfish and self-interested and delusional. So we kind of evolved this reward system for rewarding status when people were useful to the group. It's kind of like an evolutionary bribe to kind of nudge us and coax us into being useful to the people around us. And there are two ways of doing that. The first way is by being virtuous, generous with your food, courageous in battle, but also somebody that, that, that is very good at sticking to the rules of the group and enforcing the rules of the group. That's virtue too. So these are kind of virtue games. Uh, but also, of course, you can be useful to the group of being successful by being a really great honey finder, storyteller, sorcerer, hunter. So success. And, and so, so those are the basic three games of, of human social life, dominance, virtue and success. And that was true 20,000 years ago. It's still true today. As I say in the book, we can be Idi Amin, Mother Teresa or Albert Einstein. Those those the kind of the three kinds of superstar in inverted commas that, that we can be in human life so these games these status games really are solutions for survival i mean it, maybe it is just as simple as we're tribal animals that evolved to live in small groups of 30 or 40 people and for much of our existence for all of our existence acceptance into a community was the most important thing in life i mean is it really that simple yeah, yeah, almost. Um, one of the reasons I call it the status game is because it has those two elements. And one of them, is, as you say, is connection, it's belongingness. So we've evolved these very powerful emotions and drives that, that make us want to connect with people and feel connected into a group. So that's a really important, that, that's not status, that's a separate set of emotions and feelings and drives. Um, but once we're in that group, we're not particularly happy to sort of hang around on the lowest rungs. You know, we don't like to be thought of as, yeah, I like that person, but he's a bit useless. You know, nobody likes that, really. We also want to be seen as valuable. So there's this urge to move up the group. And as I say, you know, back when our tribal brains were evolving in those small groups, the more status we earned, 
the better food we got, the safer our sleeping sites, the greater our access to our choice of mates. So psychologists sometimes describe it as getting along and getting ahead, these two basic drives, you know, the connection into groups and, and rising within them in status. That's what we were doing, you know, back when we were evolving. And it's what we do today. You know, the, the reason that we behave like this, we cluster into groups and we play status games within them is because we have these tribal brains. And if you kind of take a step back and just look at human social life, it's just status games. That's what our religion is. That's what our political group is. That's what a cult is. That's what a hobby group, you know, Android and iOS obsessives are <laughs> playing status games. It's, it's just status games everywhere you look. And they all have that basic arrangement where they're coalitions of like-minded people who bound together and enjoy being connected, but also jostle for status. Yeah, it's easy to forget. The world has changed quite a bit, but our brains really haven't. We're, we're still working with the same basic software. Absolutely. Yeah, our brains haven't evolved that much. I mean, one of the, the statistics that I came across that I just really opened my eyes to this in the book was that we were living as hunter-gatherer in hunter-gatherer groups for around 100,000 generations. But we've been living in settled communities for 500 generations. So, so it's just an unimaginably longer expanse of time where we're living in, the, in these groups. So, so yeah, and, and, and we have all this technology and you know, civilization and huge cities and nations, but we're still doing exactly what we were doing you know, all those millennia ago. We're just connecting into groups and competing for status. It's just that the variety and the size of the games has massively increased. But at some point, mere membership in a community or a group wasn't quite enough. I mean, I, I was reading your, your book, and it, it reminded me of this very famous essay by Rousseau, a, a French philosopher who wrote this essay called like, A Discourse on the Origins of Inequality back in like 1755, 56, something like that. But his basic argument, he was sort of flipping the conventional wisdom on its head. The story was sort of, uh, you know, in the beginning, you know, pre-political humans were brutal, hellish, savage creatures, and then civilization came along, and we became better and wiser and smarter and more gentle. And he said, no, 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 no. Actually, things are quite harmonious, that we lived very simple lives. But at some point, when we started living together, some asshole planted a flag somewhere and said, this is mine. And once that happened, then property was born. Then this whole panoply of like social pathologies and emotions you started comparing yourself to other people. You started measuring yourself based on what you have and what others have. And that was like the beginning of, of the end of, uh, that was the beginning of greed and lust and envy <laughs> and shame and all these sorts of things. I mean, you're doing something similar here, no? Well, I mean, I, I don't really agree with that Rousseau thing. I, you know, I, yeah. the, the, the modern research doesn't bear that out at all. This idea that, that pre-agriculture, we were living in, you know, this sort of perfect, naive communist bliss just isn't, isn't true. And, and when researchers talk about egalitarian hunter-gatherer tribes, you know, there's two things to say about that. One is it's relative. They're relatively egalitarian compared to today. Yeah. But the other thing is, is they're egalitarian, not because people living in kind of pre-modern groups I just don't care about status. It's because they care about status a lot and they have lots of social checks and balances to make sure that people don't rise too much. So, you know, one of the universal things that humans dislike and it's true in pre-modern groups is what some anthropologists refer to as big shot behavior. You know, somebody swaggering in the big hunter, look what right. I've got. And all around the world, across cultures, there, there are serious checks and balances for people who behave like that. One that I write about in the book, which I thought was hilarious, this Inuit tribe has a tradition where, this, where they gather around this person <laughs> yeah and sing a song of derision in their faces. <laughs> you know? So, so, so yeah. you know, humiliation, mockery, ostracization. We just don't put up with those people. And those mechanisms work really well in, in a pre-modern uh, environment. But, you know, what Rousseau did have right is that when we started to think about 
private property, land ownership, accumulation of wealth, everything goes haywire. Because, you know, we've always had, since before we were human, since we were living in the trees, this compulsion to get status, to get rank, that kind of ancient drive just, yeah, it goes haywire because those checks and balances aren't there anymore. A song of derision doesn't work if you're singing it in the face of a powerful king who owns the land that you're farming. You know, you know it doesn't work. Right. You're going to get killed. <laughs> so, 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 yeah, it, does, it doesn't work. And, 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 you know, I'm sure that's why there is so much unhappiness in, in the modern world is because, as I say in the book, we, we're not designed to play these enormous status games. We're not designed to be maddened with envy and resentment in this world of superstar CEOs, celebrities, you know, godlike politicians. Yeah. It, it is not how we're supposed to be living. It's not how our brains are, are, are wired for. So, yeah, I do think that that's why there is a there's a level of resentment and unhappiness and bitterness and anger in modern industrial communities that I'm sure wasn't there um, in pre-modern times to, to any, yeah. anything like the same degree and, and, you know, in the same way. Yeah. I mean, you even say, speaking of unhappiness, I mean, you say in the book that the greatest predictor of subjective well-being or, or happiness, to put it more simply, is respect and admiration within one's own, you know, local group or community, not socioeconomic status. So is that is that really true? Do we have evidence that bears that out that we really do ultimately care more about status than than money or things? Yeah, yeah, there are all kinds of of studies that have shown this in lots of different ways. But but the, the simplest way to understand it is that we haven't evolved to crave money because money hasn't been around long enough. We've, yeah. we've evolved to crave status and, and money is just another way that we play status games. And lots of people play status games with money, but lots of people don't. Lots of people don't really care that much about money, but they're still playing status games. The point is that status games are symbolic. Yeah. We're, we're these incredible, incredibly imaginative cultural creatures that live in these kind of mad kind of dream, you know, dreamscapes, these stories that we tell about the world. And those stories indicate what things are going to symbolize status uh, you know what beliefs are going to symbolize status what dress codes are going to symbolize status what social behaviors are going to symbolize status and, and so there are infinite varieties of status games to play it doesn't have to be money it can be um, you're trying to save the world but by being a kind of an eco warrior or it can be that you're a buddhist and you're and you're pursuing that and you're rising up the hierarchy of the buddhist community which is kind of a weird thing that is there <laughs> in itself but you know um, there is infinite variety of ways that we can play status games and the way to understand them is that they're symbolic. When we're playing Monopoly and, and we're, we're playing a status game competing for plastic hotels and houses, that's a symbolic status game. Uh, when we're a, a soccer fan or a baseball fan and we're playing a status game with that team and that team's wins are symbolizing status for our group, that's a status game. So it kind of never ends. I mean, of course, you know, money has other benefits you know, that are also very much connected to survival and reproduction, which is why there's a huge emphasis on money for lots of people. It's not just a status game. It also you know, brings us huge material rewards. But um, the other part of the question was, was about the, the socioeconomic versus the smaller group. And, and I think that's true too. When academics kind of look at how we compare ourselves in the broad, you know, working class versus upper class or however you want to describe it, it doesn't really make much difference because, again, we've evolved to compete in small groups. And that means within our status game or within that kind of small community. So we're much more interested in... Um, the acclaim and respect of our peer group than, than people outside our peer group. You know, we're, we're very interested in status. So, so of course, we're interested in what everybody thinks of us, but it's mostly about our peer group, the people around us. Well, you're reminding me why the most annoying person is the one who insists they're above the status games, that they're not <laughs> yeah. playing the status games. Those are typically the people who are so 
deeply sunk in a status game they don't know it anymore right we're all playing yeah. some form or another of a status game either we know it or we don't but we are yeah that's right i mean i've, I've got a, a very dear friend who is you know very into wellness and he, he tells me that about his when he's driving his kids to school he's got this beaten up old car and, he, and, and the wing mirror is um hanging off with you know, tape and all this stuff and um you know he's not short of money but he, he likes having that car and he, he likes to talk about how you know all these people turning up at that school with their big expensive mercedes and bmws i don't care about that stuff but of course right. he cares deeply about that because he keeps telling me about it yeah and implicit in that is he's looking down his nose at people with the big flashy brand new cars just like they potentially in his mind and probably are uh, you know looking down their nose at him with his beaten up old car it's just that you're using different things to symbolize status there's that sense of oh, i'm better than these people because look at my kind of car it's like well you, you can't think your way outside of the status game it, it's completely kind of baked into the brain and that means it's baked into our you know very experience of the world it's, it's how the brain processes reality it's embedded into that so you, you know you can't just excuse yourself from it will store says no one escapes the status game it's fundamental to who we are when we come back, I ask him how the modern world supercharges the status games we've always played. That's after the break. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline, because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Well, let's talk about the kinds of popular sorts of status games we're playing in the world today as it is. You know, you, you write a lot in the book about how capitalism, which has sort of defined the modern world, supercharges our status games. And it has helped to engineer what you call the neoliberal self, which is this construct that we're all drowning in. What is that? What is the neoliberal? Self? Yeah, I mean, so, so uh, you remember that I, I, this is a kind of concept that I started writing about in Selfie. Yeah, it was out yeah. in 2017. And, uh, you know, this is where the status game builds on Selfie, really. And it's this, it, it's this idea that we're very malleable in the sense that we end up playing the games that we're kind of born into. So when, when people are born, they have half-finished brains and that's what childhood and adolescence is all about. It's about completing that building. And so much of that is, is learning how to play the status games in cultural environments. So, 
you know, that's what parents are doing, saying, good boy, good girl, or naughty, naughty. You're, you're being given an up or a down, a, you know, a reward or a punishment up and down that hierarchy, depending on if you're conforming to the rules of your time and place. And then, of course, as adolescents, when we kind of leave the training grounds of, of home and join our peer group, which, which are our first adult status games. And in adolescence, the brain changes in certain ways that specifically make us highly sensitive to the kind of judgments, the status judgments of, of the people around us, which is why teenagers are often you know, fear between being incredibly embarrassed all the time and being incredibly risk-taking all the time. That's because they're highly, suddenly, highly sensitive to social status. So, you know, we are vulnerable and we keep being vulnerable. In the book, I, I, you know, I talk about a study that was done by an American judge who was once a big-name lawyer who talks about how when lawyers play the status games, which he explicitly defines as a game of being a lawyer, they become very quickly corrupted because of the pressures. Um, so we never stop being vulnerable to the rules of the game. And so the neoliberal self is really just a way of trying to explore who we are today in the West and, and looking back at how the economy is actually, you know, to my mind, a very significant driver in our cultural personality, our cultural self. And in Selfie, I looked at this in more detail, but I kind of reprised the argument in the status game, just looking at, you know, the Reagan-Thatcher neoliberal revolution in, in the 1980s, which is all about getting rid of as much communitarian stuff as possible. So unions, taxes, regulations. It was all about making the world as competitive as possible wherever they could. And what's fascinating to me is to see how we changed as a people in response to that. Uh, and again, this is all generalization because it always is when you're talking about cultures and groups. But generally speaking, as a culture in the West, we went from kind of fuck the man in the 60s to greed is good in the 80s. In 20 years, this complete revolution in who we are. And we're still in this kind of neoliberal space now. And, it, and, and I think it's accelerated by the Internet, by social media. Well, this taps into a very fascinating question in the world of philosophy that goes back a long, long time about whether or not there's actually been a revelation in who we are. Right. Like. So the capitalists will say, hey, look, their system accepts the inescapability of status seeking and harnesses it for the greatest possible good of all. And the anti-capitalists will say, no, 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 no. Capitalist ideology engineers the obsession with status and then pretends it's natural. In other words, we've just been puppets for so long we can't see the strings anymore. What say you? On that. Well, it, again, it's somewhere in the middle. But, but I mean, the thing is, we absolutely know for certain that capitalism didn't invent status driving. I mean, that, that really is completely untrue. As I say, we've been status driving for billions of years. People in pre-modern groups are, are, are very interested in status. It, animals are very interested in status. This idea that capitalism invented it is, is simply not true. But it is true that capitalism ha has encouraged it in the sense that Inequalities are, are enormous. Um, but then, you know, there were pre-capitalism too. You're looking at, you know, feudal systems before capitalism. So it's not as though there were no inequalities. In fact, the inequalities are much worse pre-capitalism. But certainly, you know, in a consumer society, we experience the world symbolically, which means that we're surrounded by symbols of other people's success and other people's virtue all the time. So, you know, products like social media, products like Twitter, you know, in the book, I describe Twitter as a slot machine for status. It's, it's basically mm. just a massive machine for playing status games. You log on, you compete with dominance, virtue and success, and it drives you mad. It's a bit like how the invention of candy bars 
candy bars didn't, didn't invent our craving for sweet food. That's always been there and it's been strong because sweet food is hard to find. So we need to be strongly motivated to seek it out because it's good for us, because it's full of energy. And we're strongly motivated to seek connection and status. And, and so, so, you know, Twitter is to the to status what our candy bar is to our craving for sugar. It's always been there, but it is maddened and exacerbated by the modern world. But, but, but the other things to say, two things, because this has been a learning experience for me because, you know, I've always been a, a very left-wing person. I'm full of those left-wing prejudices and biases and assumptions but 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 i think the biggest thing that i took away from this is, is actually that, that capitalism is a complete mixed bag because because yes you know lots of terrible inequalities happen but but also what how i've come to see modernity is that, that it's um really about shifting the emphasis from virtue games to success games so pre-industrial revolution for millennia it was mostly about virtue and dominance we, we, it was about religion um it was about caste you were born into a caste, you were born into a religion and, and, and you know, your, your job really, really was to, to know your place and stay in it, especially sort of in the big God religion era uh, where, where they concocted this, this, this status game where your rewards aren't on earth. They're in heaven after you die, which is very convenient because it means that, you, you know, you don't feel hard done by when you don't actually get anything in the life you're living on earth. And then what happened in the Industrial Revolution is that we started playing success games. You know, initially, it was a kind of a narrow band of kind of the aristocracy. Then it kind of filtered down. The idea was that we started playing games that, that rewarded status for the discovery of new and useful information. And that, that began as this kind of hobby group that they called the Republic of Letters, intellectuals across Europe writing letters about interesting things and swapping them. And then they'd, they developed this system, which is basically the, the forerunner of the scientific method, where the, the people in the letter group would judge the claim and, and test it and be sceptical about it and try and make it better. And the more you made the idea better, the more status you accrued. And, and this Republic of Letters becomes the enlightenment which becomes the industrial revolution but basically with humans we're so obsessed with status whatever you plug your status into we're going to become obsessed by and so we, we became obsessed by the discovery of new and useful knowledge at first in western europe and then of course it spread to the united states now it's spread around the world and that's actually been a force for massive good you know the people who invented the coronavirus vaccines were playing success games their status is rewarded for the successful discovery and in your know, manufacture of a vaccine that will fight the coronavirus. So, so these success games that define the modernity, we, we, we're very focused on the left at all the bad parts of them for good reason. But we also should accept that they are responsible for civilization as we know it. What do you mean when you write that we may exist in the world, but we live inside the stories we tell about it? You know, we're the heroes. We're the protagonist of our own stories. The way you put it is we hallucinate our world into being. And that plays out in very interesting ways in this kind of late capitalist world on the left and the right uh so yeah what do you have in mind when you yeah so, so so the status game this kind of belonging and status they, they need to get along and get ahead they're very much subconscious drives of course we're aware of them consciously because they're so powerful um but they're, but they're mostly kind of subconscious drives we experience life not as a game but as a story you know the, the brain is the original storyteller the reason that we tell stories in the in the form that we do is because we're mimicking how the brain processes reality and turns it into the experience of our life. You know, the brain makes us this moral character at the centre of the universe, surrounded by this cast of supporting characters and puts us on these plots, which it kind of fools us into thinking of or of immense and fantastic importance. 
so that's human life. It's a story. And, it, and it, you know, it is literally, a, it's a hallucination. It's controlled by our senses. Our senses are, are just sort of fact checkers, though. They, they don't give very good information to the brain. Most of what we experience right now is, is hallucination. It's, it, it's a prediction that the brain's kind of putting there. And what happens when we connect into status games is that all these brains connect together and we enter into this kind of shared hallucination where, where you know, we all tell ourselves that Jesus Christ is real and people who believe in Jesus are great and people who don't are terrible they're going to hell down and people who believe are going up to heaven and the brain is very good at absolutely convincing us of the reality of these hallucinations of these games that we're playing and convincing us that our pursuit of status within these games you know uh, is of incredible importance you know I've been, I've been writing about irrationality for a long time now uh, and i really think that this is kind of the ground zero of human rationality the beliefs which our status depends on so, so in the book, as you know, there's a chapter on anti-vaxxers and I interviewed an anti-vaxxer from Pennsylvania, yeah. a young woman who, who described very vividly the process of getting sucked into um, a, an anti-vax group in Facebook a few years ago. And, you know, she said it's all about status in there. You know, she was somebody that grew up surrounded by strong women. She loved strong women. She admired strong women. These were all strong mothers. She felt impressed by them. She wanted to be accepted, had that connection, bonding with them. And then, but then once she was kind of bonded with them, these games that we play, like anti-vax or religion or cult, they depend on active belief. You know, belief is the price of acceptance into the game. So if I believe that vaccines are harmful, I'm allowed into that game. But to earn status in that game, now that takes active belief. That means me going out in the world and almost becoming possessed by this belief, becoming this belief's... Performing you it. Know, uh, yeah, yeah, robot out there kind of proselytizing for it. And then, and then Miranda would tell me, you know, she'd have a big argument with, with her cousin or a doctor and she'd, she'd set the world right, tell them how it was about Big Pharma and she'd come straight back and, and, and open Facebook and tell all the, the mums on, on our group what she'd done. And they go, yeah, you go, girl. And, you know, that's how you earn status. That's how you got social status in that group. And it, and it becomes addictive. And then once your status depends on acceptance of a belief, it becomes extremely hard to shift that belief because your status depends on it being true. Well, you have a pretty provocative claim in the book. I mean, you, you kind of offer a, a definition of tyranny as something that happens when status games go bad or wrong. You write that we must accept that tyranny isn't a left thing or a right thing. It's a human thing. It doesn't arrive goose stepping down the streets it seduces us with stories and you know i'll just say that the question that obsessed me most as a political theorist in my previous life i wrote a lot about ideology and how they become basically political religions and the question that always vexed me particularly about nazi germany is you know how does arguably the most sophisticated developed or certainly one of the most sophisticated developed and well-educated societies on the planet become deranged by the most barbarous inhumanity maybe ever. And your answer seems to be that they were playing a status game that went disastrously wrong. And that's not to obviate or diminish the role of ideology or racism or whatever. Those are all real and they matter. But it's also true that our beliefs are often props for much deeper psychological drives. And however insane Nazi Germany appeared from the outside, and it was indeed insane, for lots of people inside, they were just jockeying for position within a social hierarchy. And that has a way of blinding our moral intuitions in really disturbing ways. Yeah, this was one of the big sort of revelations for me, really, because like you, you know, being brought up in the UK, we were obsessively taught about the Nazis and the Second World War. And it's very recent, obviously, in our shared history. 
But the question, as you, as you exactly as you put it, always is how can this incredibly sophisticated nation fall so hard and so badly? And and in the answer that, that that I kind of came to in the status game was 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 actually the sophistication of that nation is part of the reason why it fell so badly. And so earlier in the book, as you know, I talk about individual killers, individual people who have, who have gone to mass kill. So whether it's terrorists or incel spree killers or serial killer Ed Kemper, these were men. It should it probably goes without saying are much more likely for evolutionary reasons to restore what they perceive as their lost status with violence. They were all humiliated. All of those uh, men were, were serially humiliated throughout their childhoods and suffered from the perception that they were extremely low status. And, just, you know, it wasn't just one event. It was they were just dragged through it in quite barbaric ways. But also, you know, and I think essentially they all started off very high. So all of those people were narcissistic. I can't say that they were narcissists in the clinical sense because I'm, I'm not qualified to say that. In the book, I use the word grandiose, but, but they seem extremely narcissistic. So I argue in the book, that this is a really deadly combination. If you take a narcissistic man and chronically humiliate them, there's a likelihood that they're going to become violent and perhaps extremely violent. And in the book, I, I talk in detail about this guy, Elliot Roger, this incel guy, you know, completely grandiose and entitled and unpleasant in his worldview, found it impossible to make friends and girlfriends as he became an adolescent and became obsessed um, with the fact that girls didn't like him, with all the misogyny that that suggests. And he ends up at the age of 17 having this kind of crazy ideology, which basically said that um, sex should be abolished. Because the reason the world is terrible is, is all the fault of women, because women always choose the jocks, the violent, aggressive jocks to procreate with. So they have all these jock, violent babies. So it's all the fault of women. So what we need to do is exterminate the women, apart from a few, which will be artificially inseminated in like laboratories to keep the human race going. And then, you know, that'll be a kind of, you know, utopia. And you read that, you just think, my God, this guy is sick. That is a sick ideology. And surely this guy is mad. He's crazy. He needs to be sex. And certainly his actions, he did a, a spree killing in Santa Barbara, would suggest that, that would be true. But then you look at what happened in Germany in the 1930s and you see almost exactly that happening, but on the level of the nation. Yep. Germany pre-World War I was a, was a pretty grandiose nation and for lots of good reasons. They were the most successful nation in continental Europe and probably all of Europe, including the UK at that point. And then, you know, famously after the First World War, they felt completely humiliated. Not only were they taken out of the war when they felt that they were going to win, um, the Treaty of Versailles was designed to humiliate them. And they were, they were dragged down into a kind of state of absolute national distress and humiliation. And, and you know, historians, mainstream historians agree that the, the main thing the Germans wanted was the restoration of what they saw of Germany's rightful place at the top. Anti-Semitism was widespread in Europe. It was a major issue, but, but the main thing they were focused on um, was the restoration of, of Germany's place at the top of the status game. And then what Hitler did and, and what all the kind of anti-Semites did was do exactly what Elliot Rogers did, which they weave this terrible story, which it is outlines are no different to the story that Elliot Rodgers told about women. It's just they, they were about the Jewish people with the result, obviously, is the Holocaust. You know, suddenly when you when you look at what happened through the lens of status, it suddenly becomes explicable. You see these patterns of behavior in individuals and you also see them in nations. Yeah, I mean, you, you have a chapter in the book where you call the humiliated male the game's most lethal player. And you, you quote an African proverb that I'd never encountered before that goes, the child who is not embraced by the village will burn it down. 
to feel its warmth. And I swear, man, that that quote is still kind of washing over me. Um, it it really is, and, and it it just kind of distills all of this, really. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I would only add it's a bit less poetic, but the male child, I think, yeah. you know, it, men yeah, are really violent compared to women. And, and there, there are, of course, you know, differences. I mean, honour killing is very much tied to humiliation, the humiliation of the family. And it, in some cultures, women are very implicated in honour killing. So I'm not sort of weaving a my own simplistic story of men bad, women good. That's not true at all. Women have also got their, you know, dominance techniques ostracization bullying kind of groupish attacks on other people of the kind we see on social media for example it's not accurate to say that's toxic femininity or anything like that you know men and women do that but there's no shortage of women you know using that form of aggression that kind of achieving status through dominance yeah and look you you say that the experience of humiliation is essentially the annihilation of the self and you can look at extreme disgusting cases like roger and, and it could be tempted into thinking that you know, the rest of us are exempt from that. But that is a kind of self-deception. I mean, th these impulses live in all of us. And to forget that is to be vulnerable to the worst manifestations of it. Yeah, that's right. And and, and I, I forget the, the precise numbers, but in, in that chapter, you know, I talk about a major study that asked men and women about the last time i think the last time they fantasized about killing somebody and, and for, for both genders you know a large chunk of that was about status it was about sort of being humiliated and triggers these sort of homicidal fantasies in a large number of people across the genders and, and you know I, i'm sure we, we can all admit in ourselves that when we've been at our worst not only the most in pain because humiliation is acutely painful you know, because status is so important to us, when it's removed from us in such a complete way, it's extremely painful. And, and I mean, you know, for me personally, I know that when I become most irrational in my head about, oh, you know, when I'm dividing the world into heroes and villains and telling this kind of nasty kind of moral story about goodies and baddies, um, it tends to be when I'm feeling my status is under threat by people or groups. The consequences of the status game can be incredibly high, sometimes bloody, as Will Store just discussed. But the status game can also make the stakes seem high in situations that are not so dire, like on social media. That's next after one more short break. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Choiceology is a show all about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Each episode shares the latest research in behavioral science and dives into themes like, can we learn to make smarter decisions? And the power of do-overs. The show is hosted by Katie Milkman. She's an award-winning behavioral scientist, professor at the Wharton School, and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. In each episode, Katie talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast or find it wherever you listen. I want to go back to, to something you said earlier about uh, social media. I mean, is is the internet and social media the, the greatest or the most powerful status 
generating machine in all of human history? Um, <laughs> that's and a, if it I isn't, mean, probably, what the hell comes close? Yeah, I mean, probably. I mean, I mean, religion is a status generating machine. The nation is a status generating machine. So it's quite difficult to kind of judge them in that sense. But certainly, that's what social media either is. And, and as you know, in, in the book, I talk about the first social media site as we know it. It was called the Well, uh, and it was it, it was back in the eighties and the mid eighties, back in the time when we were still putting our phones on modems and dialing in and all that stuff. Uh, and even then, it was extraordinary when you look at the history of the well, what was happening there. So, so the well was a bit like Reddit. It was just people with most of them on the West Coast of the US with, with things in common, would, would gather in groups and discuss them. So if, you, if you're into wine, you'd talk about wine. And I'm sure there was lots of showing off and stuff about what you knew about wine. And then when it got to about 500, <laughs> this person arrived who was just... In the book, I describe him as the world's first internet troll, probably a little bit uncharitably, but he was just basically just attacking them all, really hated men, and he let them know, it, and he called them all racists and perverts and destroyers, and he completely maddened them, and they just cancelled culture, this person. They kind of mobbed up against him, kicked him out, deleted lots of his um, uh, entries. And amazingly, he was a biological female, not, not a transgender person, somebody that was sort of non-gendered, but chose male pronouns. And they were having all these arguments about pronouns <laughs> that we're still having today. You, you know, they were, they were making those stupid jokes about, well, if you identify as what you want, I want to identify as the King Poobar. And, you know, so, so everything that was happening kind of happens on social media today. It was happening on the first website back in the 80s when the population was around 500. So I certainly think that um, Zuckerberg and Dorsey and, and all that lot, they've not helped but they're not responsible for what, you know, they haven't invented, in, you know, from the ground up uh, what happens on social media. You know, in, in Selfie, I wrote about the selfie camera. It's exactly the same story where we're very good at blaming our bad behaviour on individuals. And in the case of the selfie camera, you know, at the time when I wrote that book, people were saying, oh, the selfie camera has made us all narcissists. But the selfie camera was not dreamt of by Silicon Valley as a selfie camera. It was supposed to be as a business meeting thing, you know, like Zoom, I suppose. But and also for talking to your nan, they thought that's what we're going to be doing. They didn't think we we're going to be taking pictures of ourselves and uploading billions of them a day. And it's the same with social media. You know, social media has, by instinct, worked out how we play status games and kind of wrapped itself around status games and encouraged them with the, you know, follow accounts and blue badges and all that stuff. So like capitalism, it encourages it, it worsens it, but it didn't create it. Are we living in the most, I was going to say self-obsessed, but maybe it's better to say, are we living in the most status-obsessed culture in human history? If for no other reason other than the tools with which to perform status are as great and vast as they've ever been. I would go on a limb and say that's true because the status games that, that are available to us are so many and so huge, the inequality between the top and the bottom. You know, pre-capitalism, as I said before, it was very much caste-based. You were born into a caste a family group that had a trade probably attached to it. And, and that's what you did. You worshipped your gods. You did your work. You stayed in your place. And, and if you did that, then people thought you were a good person and you were going to go to heaven or, or whatever it was. But now, you know, post-industrial revolution, that's when money becomes accessible to, in theory, everyone. And I know we're still working on that project, but more and more, that's true. You know, meritocracy becomes more and more true the, the more we hammer away at um, racial and gender inequalities, the more we, we slowly solve those problems, the more meritocracy happens. The greater these status games, the more the competition, the, the greater the rewards. You know, post-social media, that's a whole new universe of status games. So, so yeah, I, I think it's definitely accurate to say that today we are surely more maddened by status than we ever have been in human history. Is it even possible to live without status at this point? I mean, it seems that that possibility 
went out the window the minute we started living together in large groups? Well, even before that, when we were animals, to, to find yourself at the bottom of the hierarchy of your troop yeah. or however we're looking at the time is a dangerous yeah. place to be. You don't want to be there. So, so that's going to make you feel really bad. And I, in the book, I talk about people who've tried to do that. And of course, people who practice mindfulness meditation try to rid themselves of, of the kind of status urge, the status craving. But um, it, it, you know, it doesn't it doesn't completely work. There's one study they looked at three thousand seven hundred roughly um, mindfulness meditators. These were people that, that practiced specifically to reduce ego needs to lessen their need for success, and and they found that these people measured very high in what they described as spiritual superiority. Yeah, surprise! So, surprise. so they were started, they all felt really good about themselves. Like, and they, they, they were saying things like, "Well, if only other people had the insights I have, the world would be a much better place." And and they, you know, it's quite funny in a way, but it's also completely predictable. That's human nature. You know, if, if we discover this new thing of mindfulness meditation and we get really good at it, we buy the clothes and the little stool and whatever it is, and we start feeling proud of ourselves. It, you know, it's just human nature. And again, it's baked into how we experience the world. So so I've no doubt that if you get really good meditation, you can become a bit more chilled out about your level of status. But I, I'm sure you can't get rid of it completely. So if you're right, and I think you are, that we can't really escape the status game, then the question is, well, how can we play it more wisely or better? And I'll just quote you. You say, perhaps the best mode of protection is to play mini games. People who appear brainwashed have invested too much of their identity in a single game. And that's a pretty important insight, I think, that I, I wish we could mainline into our body politic, at least in this country. But what does it mean to play uh, multiple games or to have multiple identities? Yeah, so so let's go back to an early question we asked about tyranny, and and you know I came across this fascinating concept in psychology as a psychologist called Michelle Gelfand, who's who's a pioneer in this idea that groups can be kind of loose versus tight, and cultures are loose versus tight. So she described the title of her book is Rule Makers and Rule Breakers. Some nations are rule makers, and some are rule breakers. And if you look at the southern states of the USA, they're much tighter than the northern states. The southern states are much more rule makers. And in the northern states, they're, they're, more, they're more rule breakers. They're, you're looser in culture. In the UK, we're relatively loose in culture. Germany's relatively tight in culture. So what tightness is about is about conformity. Um, it, it tends to be nations that have a, and cultures that have a history of harshness, problems, um, where they've had to sort of get together and, and, and work together communally, where they become sort of tighter. But even you know, gr- groups in general, when they feel under pressure, they become tight. And so conformity builds, punishments build, they become a bit more xenophobic, they become a bit more superstitious. Obviously, the southern states in America, much more religious than the northern states. Um, The codes of um, social behavior in the southern states. I mean, I've been there and I felt like I've offended people without knowing at all why in the southern states, but it's never happened to be in the northern states. And if you take that to its logical kind of end degree, that's a cult. So the tightest group imaginable is a cult. Uh, And a cult is a status game that only permits you to play one status game. So your sole source of connection and status is that cult. And that's why they cut the family off, you know, famously. That's why you're not allowed to see people who are in the cult, because you're not allowed to have access to any other sources of connection and status. And if you look at very tight um, periods in history, the Nazis, um, the communists, very, very tight groups. You, you know, the Nazis and the communists both, as soon as they got power, they started extinguishing you know, rival groups. You had to be a communist, you had to be a Nazi, and, you, and it was a bad thing not to be. And, 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 and the lesson is that I think we can take from all of that is that it's good to play multiple games. And partly that's because when we just play one game, we all know people who are very political and all they think about and all they talk about pretty much is their political belief. And 
they get a lot of status out there. They get a lot of connection out of there, but you don't really want to be that person because it's dangerous. Not only are you at risk of doing actually really morally bad things because you start to justify in your head kind of violent, aggressive, dominant status contest with your rivals. You're also at risk of psychological collapse because then what happens if you get expelled from that game? What happens if that game collapses of its own accord? It's psychologically very dangerous. And so, so, so what I suggest in the, in the book is not to play multiple games exactly because status is really quite hard to get. We thrive when we feel we're earning status, but you know it's quite hard to get. So it's to play a hierarchy of games, to have one, perhaps have one main game, um, you know, writer, poet, banker, <laughs> you know, <laughs> political activist, whatever it is, but hedge it, you know, make sure that you've got a selection of other games that you are other sources of status and connection. And I think that's very healthy. Well, to shrink this down a little bit to the personal level, and I'll just speak for myself because I can't speak for <laughs> anyone else. I mean, I... I care about status. I've cared way too much about status. And I'm trying desperately to care less despite existing in a profession that requires me to pose and perform, really. And, you know, all of this is is difficult because of anxieties that I'm sure a lot of people feel about how I'm perceived, not just publicly, but even in my personal life where ego constantly gets in the way of compassion and care. And, and if I'm being honest, I mean, even in the most intimate moments of my life with friends and family where I want to believe I'm free of pretense and fear and all this stuff, I'm still playing these little dominance games. And God, they're dumb. I can't count the number of arguments I've had with my wife where the thing we're arguing about isn't the thing we're arguing about. It's me throwing a tantrum because I felt slighted in some ridiculous, inane way. So I guess what I'm saying, Will, is how can I do better? I'm paying good money for this therapy. So please, please give, give me something tangible here. Yeah, I, I need well, a plan. Well, again, well, well, I can totally relate to that. You know, certainly, you know, anybody, any of us is married, we're familiar with those ridiculous fights. Um, but, you know, apart from the kind of hierarchy of games, a general rule, if you want to kind of do, do well in status games, is to, is to kind of present with warmth, sincerity and competence. I think that's a kind of a, a good basic kind of rule. You know, if, if you're warm to people, you're saying, I'm not going to use dominance. If you're sincere, you're saying, uh, you know, I'm going to be a morally good person. I'm not going to um, bullshit you. I'm going to tell you the truth, but I'm going to be honest about it. Um, and if you're competent, I'm going to be useful to you. You're going to learn things from me. But but I think the main thing for me that's been useful is really just understanding just the nature of human life, that it's all symbolic, that we are symbolic creatures. And the brain is just really fantastic at, at telling us a story that our status is of overwhelming importance. And it really isn't. I mean, in the book, I, I tell the story about this status game in this little island in Micronesia that was based on growing massive yams. Yeah, it's a great story. And what happened was they ended up growing yams so huge that um, if you brought the biggest yam to the feast, you were publicly declared number one. And so you were top of the status game. And the yams got so big on this island that, that it took 12 men to carry one yam into a feast on a special stretcher made with poles. So that's <laughs> human beings. You know, if you attach your status into something, we just go mad on it. I almost want a momentum more ring, but except it's got a yam rather than a skull in it, you know, to remind myself that, that it is just a yam that, that you know, I'm an author and, I, and I'm not following my own advice. My own game is the writing game. I don't really have any others. And so when things go wrong, when I get a bad review or when one book sells less than the previous one, it feels like the end of the world. And it isn't the end of the world. It's so stupid. Like it's so stupid. It's just a big yam. So, so that's what I find <laughs> is a comfort in times of ridiculous tension. We really are ridiculous and beautiful creatures, I guess. Um, and that the yam story 
kind of captures the absurdity of us quite well, I think. And yet, and still, given everything we said, it is still, and you point this out in the book, incredibly easy to offer status to other people, to let go of our selfish needs and allow other people to feel important. Doing that can actually benefit us in the status game. Why the hell don't we do that more often? Yeah, that's another sort of point that sort of occurred to me as I was writing it. We are very good at these kind of small moments of dominance, even if we're not Donald Trump and we're not just these big bully apes, you know, just striding around. You know, we're very good at tutting and sighing and complaining and calling customer services. And, uh, you know, we're very good at making our displeasure, this, this dominance behaviors that, that kind of that kind of pepper our days uh, when things aren't going well for us and it, it would be just as easy to pepper your days as small moments of prestige by you know when you're in the queue at the airport you know making somebody feel good about themselves and the incredible thing about status the truly incredible thing about status is that, that it is more important to us sub, you know subconsciously than money but status is free is unlimited. You can give status to everybody that you meet if you want to. You know, all, all it takes is a warm moment, a warm comment, and we just don't do it. And, and you know, we're kind of a bit, a bit miserly about status. We feel like if I, you know, I don't know that if, if we feel that we're giving too much away, we, we're reduced somehow. But actually, the opposite is true. Yeah, I think right. the more status we give away, the, the more status is going to wash back in our direction because people love status and they'll really like you if you if you make them feel good. But you know, the caveat being, of course, it's got to be in, in an authentic way. I think the famous LA kind of Hollywood ha you know thing where everybody's everything's always amazing there has to be some authenticity to it but I definitely think that that's just a really easy way of making our our lives and the lives of the people around us much better well look you you spent a long time I, I don't know how long a year or two more researching this book and and you do talk a little bit at the end about how it's changed the way you play status games in your own life um, and how maybe you've left behind some of these self-sabotaging stories uh so yeah i guess i just want to ask how the experience of writing this book and thinking about status has changed the way you live hopefully for the better yeah i mean it's certainly i mean all of my books are an attempt to just try and work out what the hell humans are and what's going on in the in, in human social life you know i still find it difficult but i understand myself a lot better and, you know, I, I understand myself in this kind of way. I, I think as a middle-aged man, I'm one of these people that's kind of quite lonely. I don't I don't have a lot of friends. And I now understand that I, I'm probably quite low in need for connection, relatively speaking, but I'm quite high in need for status, which is why I spent years working on a book like this. <laughs> and, and so, so, so yeah. you know, it, it's not a particularly nice revelation to have about yourself, but it's definitely helped me understand my, myself a lot better. Um, and, and as I said before, it, it, it definitely helps me when I'm kind of spiraling in my room here, when something's gone wrong and I've got no one to talk to about it, my wife's at work uh, and the dogs are uh, somewhere else, you know, and I'm spiraling into a sort of toxic Elliot Rogers style story where these people are just terrible. They're awful. I'm much better at kind of stepping outside that and just going, oh, you're full of shit. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, <laughs> it's not true. Well, look, I, I really love the book um, and I love the way you think. And it's uh, it's always a pleasure to to engage. So, Will Store, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Sean. Fantastic questions. Thank you. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drostovska. Paul Robert Mounsey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, and Amber Hall is the Deputy Editorial Director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. 
room for improvement, we want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review. And join us on Thursday for a brand new episode. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.